0: Welcome, everybody. I hope the sight of me up here about to preach isn't scaring anybody off, or the fact that my hair is a bit much like uh, Jonathan Taylor Thomas. But if it is, I totally understand. I'd feel similarly if Clyde stood up here with a guitar, largely because the doxology is a tough song to chord through, and as I understand it, it may be his only song in his repertoire. As Sean mentioned earlier, it is Ascension Weekend, and this is a weekend where we celebrate Christ's ascension into heaven after his resurrection. It's also the second week in our series that we've entitled Finding Power for Living as we unpack Romans 8. And last week, Clyde spoke on the first four verses of this chapter, and you'll remember the key takeaways were as follows. For all of us who are in Christ Jesus, we are freed from condemnation. We are freed by the Holy Spirit and we are freed for sanctification, to be transformed and set apart. And we're called to live an exchanged life. As for what we should expect, there are times we will soar like eagles, experiencing a great season of life and ministry, or we may run and not grow weary, serving and moving and giving, not comparing. And then there are times When we're walking, and we're just putting one foot in front of the other. And I personally appreciate the notion that perhaps God values this walking even more than the others, where we are drawn to rely on the Spirit most authentically. This week, we're going to continue and look at verses 5 through 11, as Paul continues to express this new life in the Spirit that we are called to experience as followers of Christ. So let's read the passage together and remember that this is the word of God. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. Although the body is dead because of sin, and the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. And thank you that your spirit brings understanding as we read your word. And I pray that your presence would be resting upon us wherever we are as we read from your word. Open our hearts and our minds. We ask this in your name. Amen. So this weekend I want to focus on three questions that I think will be helpful for us today when looking at this chapter And fair warning, they may seem elementary, yet this is, in my opinion, one of the hardest things to embrace in the Christian life. That is, walking by the Spirit. The questions are as follows Who is the Holy Spirit? What is the work of the Holy Spirit in us? And how can we get in the way of that work? So let's look broadly at the first question Who is the Holy Spirit? Well, first of all, the Holy Spirit is obviously critical to our lives as followers of Jesus if Paul is saying in verse 9 that anyone without the Spirit doesn't belong to Christ. The Holy Spirit is divine. He is a divine person in the Trinity. And Jesus commissions his disciples, including us in Matthew 28, 19, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Paul also names the Trinity in his benediction at the end of 2 Corinthians. He says, The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. We see the Holy Spirit present at creation, hovering over the face of the waters in Genesis 1-2. And in Psalm 139, David asks, where shall I go from your spirit? Just as we use metaphor to describe the Father or the Son, like rock or fortress or lion, metaphors are used to describe the Spirit as well. And the most familiar are probably wind or fire. And I'm assuming that's familiar for everyone, not just those of us that have Pentecostal roots. But that being said, the Holy Spirit is a divine person and therefore has personal attributes. And we wanna be wary of depersonalizing the Holy Spirit by overfocusing on those metaphors. 1 Corinthians 2, 10 and 11 shows that the Holy Spirit has intellect and later on in chapter 12, verse 11, He shows that the Holy Spirit has a will, and perhaps most convincing to us, or at least to me. In Ephesians 4.30, it gives us proof that the Holy Spirit experiences emotion. In that verse, Paul writes to the Ephesians, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Now, this being Ascension weekend, it's actually a great time to be examining the Holy Spirit, After giving the Great Commission, Jesus ascended to heaven, exalted to the right hand of the Father. And so we have Christ coming down to earth in humility and the ascension as one of triumph and glory. Christ accomplished what he came to do. The job that was necessary for our salvation was finished. And yet, the ascension leads the way to two key outcomes. First, the disciples didn't sit staring at the sky for that long. They had a little nudging. Instead, they set off to do the work that had been set out for them. And secondly, the ascension did not mean Christ was now or is now distant or absent from the world, but rather that we as believers can also be exalted by his spirit within us. And Jesus spoke to this in John 7, 39. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. And later in John 16, Jesus shockingly tells the disciples that it's better if he leaves so that the Spirit can come. He said, nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Can you imagine how crazy this would have sounded to the disciples? They'd been following Jesus each and every day. They've seen his miracles and they've heard his teaching. His life has altered the course of their lives forever. And I think it's fair to say that they know it. And yet he's saying that it's best if he leaves, so that this helper, the Spirit, can come. Returning to our text for today, the three persons of the Trinity are included in verse 11, but they're in there twice. Verse 11 reads, If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies, through his spirit who dwells in you. Fleming Rutledge, an Episcopal priest, uh, a teacher and an author, points out the significance of this repetition in her book, The Crucifixion. In a cursory reading, it is easy to miss the repetition with which Paul intends to convey The mighty action of God, who in Christ, by the Spirit, has brought into being a new humanity. This is the great set of events that bestows upon us nothing less than the righteousness of God for the living of our lives. Meaning, everything has changed. The work of Christ on the cross has changed our outcome. And it is in that reality that we, as followers of Jesus, live. But to live that way is impossible on our own. There is only one way we can do it, and that is through a life lived by the power of the Spirit. Which brings us to our second question What is the work of the Holy Spirit in us? If I were to ask my kids what they know of the Holy Spirit, first, They would likely sing a song back to me about the fruit of the Spirit. And it's a song that they sing at school. Uh, I think they've sung it here on the weekends or at summer camp. And it's a very helpful song. It points out what the fruit of the Spirit is and what it isn't. And what would this be if I didn't sing at least one thing for you in this? And so I'll give you an example. It sings like this. The fruit of the Spirit's not a coconut. The fruit of the Spirit's not a coconut. If you want to be a coconut, you might as well hear it. You can't be a fruit of the Spirit, because the fruit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. I wish this was live. i am assuming there'd be applause. But regardless, truth be told, I had to learn that song to lead it at hymn sing at Oliver and Libby's school, and it's really quite fun and catchy. But the fruit of the Spirit listed in Galatians 5, they're a helpful indicator of our journey of being molded by the Spirit. And perhaps it's fair to say they're one of the first things about the Holy Spirit that we learn if we grow up in the church. And it contrasts well with the familiar phrase in Matthew 12, that a tree is known by its fruit. On a family vacation in Palm Springs a few years ago, we were excited and perhaps fairly obsessed with making fresh juice. There were lemon and orange and grapefruit trees at the house we were staying at, which meant fresh fruit each morning. In fact, when we went into the backyard of this house for the first time, the dead giveaway that there were lemon trees in there was that there were lemons Everywhere, they were on the ground, and most obviously, they were on the tree itself. Shocking. The fruit of the Spirit in our lives will likely be the first noticeable example of the Holy Spirit's work in us to those we come in contact with. They are the sign of what type of tree that we are. And next, I'm sure many of us would correctly point to the gifts of the Spirit Listed in 1 Corinthians 12 is another example of the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And these are free gifts to the believer. They're not rewards, but they're given as the Spirit chooses for the building up of the church and the furthering of his kingdom. And I don't have time to go into them here today, but know this. We believe firmly that these are good gifts and for this present time given by God to us. One of the most poignant images of the Holy Spirit that Scripture gives us is that of a mother. Now, our own experiences with our mother, good or bad, can help or hinder our ability to connect this passage. But we get a beautiful picture in Isaiah sixty-six, thirteen: 13. As a mother comforts her child, so will I comfort you. Whether you know the comfort of your own mother or whether you didn't have that intended experience, this picture is beautiful because the Holy Spirit can and will perfectly mother you and nurture you to health and life. There are many other ways the Spirit works in our life and I'll just quickly offer a few. The Holy Spirit guides us, convicts, intercedes, calls, commissions, bears witness, searches our hearts. And one of the names of the Holy Spirit was given by Jesus in the gospel of John, John 14, 16 and 17. It says, he said, I will ask the father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth. Now, other translations use the word advocate in that verse, whereas many of you familiar with the King James Version would remember it as comforter. In the message, Eugene Peterson used the word friend. And these are all appropriate pictures of the role of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Last week, Clyde reminded us that we've been freed for sanctification and that this is why God provided this new life. Again, the definition of sanctification is being made holy, being transformed, set apart. And Paul writes to the Galatians I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And this verse speaks to the goal of our sanctification, and living life in the Spirit is the only way to continually live this life in Christ. It's the only sufficient source of power for living. And this process is something that we can see in the way we live our day-to-day lives. However, it doesn't mean that we're going to become immune to making mistakes. Many of you know or may remember Ben Elliott, who's preached here in years past and is now the senior pastor at Deer Park Alliance in Red Deer. He put it well in his book, Accreditation Helps. Ben said, sanctification means that I am becoming the perfect specimen of right where I am at and that I am learning to obediently do just what God is asking of me right now. This process of becoming holy is us moving towards the actual standing of holiness that we have before God because of Christ's death and resurrection it is both a process and a journey but it isn't to be confused with the reality that when god looks at us he also sees the work complete fleming rutledge calls this the theme of paul's calls this theme of paul's becoming what you already are and paul speaks to it in romans 6 but present yourselves to god as those who have been brought from death to life This work of Christ in the resurrection reconciles what Augustine, or Clyde argues it's Augustine, Augustine calls the first record of our memory, in that our first memory should be, God created me in his image and likeness. This first memory is our identity, made right through Jesus' death and resurrection. And that identity, while already true, is also becoming true in our lives in real time by the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. This isn't something we strive for or do ourselves. We're not talking about self-help. That this is a supernatural work done by God. The Holy Spirit is not a reward for having faith or good works, but rather an ever-offered gift given to us by God. And so in light of that truth and good news, why is it so hard? Why do I wake up in a day and seem to stumble through, not coming close to experiencing that reality? Well, let's look at our final question. How can we get in the way of the Holy Spirit's work? Whereas this is definitely not self-help and is purely the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, we do have a role, and namely, our role is to be willing. Be willing to continue to fix our eyes on Christ, who set our standing and identity before God. It's, it's truly already complete. And in light of that, our role is to be willing to submit To the work of the Spirit daily. And again, not in a try harder type of way, but perhaps almost a try less way. Choose not to rely on our own will to do right and completely surrender to God's ever offered gift. And our text today speaks to that tension in verse 5 and 6. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. When Paul says the word flesh, he isn't speaking of the human body. We aren't Gnostic. We don't believe that our physical bodies are evil. Rather, he's speaking to our sinful nature in opposition to God. This is something we will constantly wrestle with in our lives until Christ's return. Paul himself shared his frustration with this reality. He said, I don't understand my own actions. I don't do what I want to do, and I do the very things that I hate. And the flesh is something we actively have to turn from, as we submit to the Spirit's work each day. And like I said earlier, we will not be perfect in this. But by the Spirit's power, we can put one foot in front of the other. In Acts 7, Stephen showed that we can actively resist the Spirit in our lives And Paul calls the Galatians foolish for ignoring or refusing the spirit by returning to the law, even though they'd already once accepted grace. We can quench the spirit's work in our lives. And Isaiah 63.10 shows that we can grieve the spirit, which as we read earlier, Paul implores the Ephesians not to. The flesh is always the problem. Sin, our innate leaning to follow our own way, It works in direct contradiction to life in the Spirit. And Romans 8 makes it clear that the flesh and the Spirit are in direct opposition to one another. And dealing with the flesh is constant. We can and will grow in Jesus by the power of the Spirit. But until he returns and the kingdom of heaven comes down, the flesh will always be a part of our experience. Let me give you an example from my own life. Uh, Some of you might be aware that I grew up in a charismatic church, a church that genuinely desired God in real, tangible, and miraculous ways. And truthfully, I wouldn't be the pastor or the musician that I grew to be if not for that experience. And I was given a gift in those years that until more recently, I, I actually wasn't very willing to recognize. And the problem is I saw it, but now have words for it was that the emphasis was on a charismatic experience of the Spirit above all else, with less to say about the often slow journey of sanctification, or the Spirit's work that is less sensational on the surface. At the same time, my church was struggling in almost every possible way, and there was a lot of dissension, and sadly, the church split. And shortly after that, in my early teens, I had a less than stellar experience of praying at the altar, surrounded by people praying for me to receive the gift of tongues. And even before I go any further, I want to say very clearly, I firmly believe in the gift of tongues for today. However, the emphasis that was placed on this specific gift was almost too much to bear for me as a young teen. I felt I was missing something critical to my life as a Christian, and no matter how hard I tried, I couldn't get it, and that led to a feeling that something was wrong with me. And I'll spare the details, but essentially, at the altar that day, I was told I had received the gift of tongues, and I didn't feel as though I had. In fact, I I knew I hadn't. And that experience, again, mixed with powerfully authentic moments of grace in my formative years, that experience put a bad taste in my mouth and I became wary about gifts of the Spirit. My faith and desire gave way to cynicism and doubt bordering on unbelief. Over time, I came to see that Around me, there had been a genuine longing for an experience of the Spirit that I also want now. We are all flawed, and our actions impact other people, even when we don't realize it. But during a conversation with a friend some years ago in the Cardo, I shared this story with them, and they posed almost immediately a question to me that turned out to be incredibly profound for me. My friend Gary, he asked, Do you think that experience is holding you back from everything the Holy Spirit has for you now? And as obvious or natural as that conclusion may seem to me now, I I had never once thought of that, and it absolutely had. My own experience had led to a resistance to the full work of the Spirit in my life. I was quenching the Spirit, and my friend Gary was used by God to open my eyes to that fact. And perhaps something in your own journey has acted as a barrier to experiencing the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. Another barrier to the work of the Spirit is unresolved sin. Verse 7 tells us sin runs in direct opposition to life in the Spirit, and we'll read it together. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. As we already saw earlier, one of the roles of the Holy Spirit is to convict. Bringing these things to our minds so that we can deal with them and be free of it. For where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. As I was studying this text, I got a sense that there was a very significant barrier that I think many of us deal with, uh, and I know I certainly do uh, at different times, And, and it's simply this. We live in fear of, or a feeling of, unworthiness. This can be for a variety of reasons, and some beyond our control, and often formed by our life experiences, but we we so easily revert to seeing the Holy Spirit as a reward for doing the right thing rather than a free, ever-offered gift. We have a hard time giving up the habit of getting discouraged and believing that we aren't doing enough to earn the Holy Spirit, when in fact we must simply try less and open our hands. And this is where the picture of the Holy Spirit as a mother in Isaiah comes to mind yet again. A mother who comforts and nurtures a child who doesn't feel they're good at anything. A mother who lovingly puts the child back on its feet so they can continue walking forward. And as we come to the end here, I think there is a relatively simple application. And yet it's something we need to continue to put into practice we must commit to setting our mind on things of the Spirit. Again, I don't mean this in a try harder or a do better way, but an open-handed surrender to the work of the Spirit. And a word for this that we're familiar with is repent. And we're familiar with that word as it pertains to the repenting of sin, but that is a necessary, obviously that's necessary because sin is a barrier That we've already talked about, but in the truest sense of the word, to repent is to turn 180 degrees. This isn't just about changing our thought process, but reorienting our desires. And the choices aren't endless. In fact, there's only two set our minds to the flesh or set our minds to the spirit. Let us repent and turn our gaze to the Spirit as our source of power for living. The simplest way to do this is to merely ask. And it's something I think we likely don't do enough. So truthfully, in boldness, know that as we have put our faith in Jesus, our standing with God is set. So knowing that, open our hands and ask for continued work of the Spirit in our lives. And we should do this often, because the flesh is still present. But by the Spirit's guidance and power and gifts, we will see the fruit. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your Spirit. Continue to pour out your Spirit on us. Bring to our minds the things that are barriers to experiencing more of you and help us to deal with them. Pour out your love and work in our children, teens, and adults. Give us boldness to walk this life as ones who are sealed and filled by the Holy Spirit. Amen. And as we go into this new week, continue to pray to see the Spirit's work in us as the church. And as we move into this week, may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. May it be so in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.